0: Hello and welcome to Monkey Business, a podcast about the mind. I'm Rosalind Palmer, your host, and I'm a rapid transformational hypnotherapist, clinical hypnotherapist, and coach. For 30 years, I've been steeped in the world of NLP and learning about what makes people tick. My background is a business background. I ran I created, I sold an award-winning PR company in the 90s. I learnt a lot about business. I also learnt a lot about mindset and I learnt the hard way about burnout. Having the right mindset in business is arguably the number one predictor of whether your business will succeed or fail. What's more, your business can succeed, mine did, but you might fail as a human being. So quieting your mind, is the key to enjoying the business journey, coming back from setbacks, enjoying the successes without letting them completely change you, and also creating a balanced life for yourself outside of the business. This is a podcast for you to learn from the successes and failures of others who have tamed their monkey mind or sometimes allow their chimp to take over. It will give you insights into how they've used their mindset for success and help you navigate your life and achieve better business outcomes. So without further ado, welcome to Monkey Business. I'm Roslyn Palmer and you are most welcome. Hello and welcome to another episode of Monkey Business, the podcast, and you may be viewing this also on YouTube, which is designed to really understand the monkey mind or what's behind the habits, the success, the outward shows, the behaviours of highly successful or adaptive people, people who have tamed their monkey minds to become kings and queens of their own jungle, or maybe people who've come through adversity um, and managed to get that chimp back in its cage. And I'm delighted to be joined today um, from Sunny Nottingham, I thought she was in uh, America because it looks so amazing, by Susan Hallam. Hello, Susan. How are you? I'm very well, Roz. Thank you for having me. And I was thinking back to when I first met you, Susan. I'm about to read your really wonderful CV. I'm thinking back, though, to when I met you, and I think it was about 2007. Um, So it actually predated your incredible agency, Hallam, um, I believe. uh, And it was when you were training with Business Link. And I was a marketing director. I'd come back after a gap. Um, I knew good old-fashioned marketing, marketing in the 80s and the 90s, and all this internet and online malarkey was frightening me. And I was sent along to a whole series of courses with your very good self. So, um, do you remember that?
1: I do remember it. We were in Leicester, if you recall. And and actually, um, I founded the agency in 1999. Uh, So, this after that then that you found quite a bit after that yeah yeah Yeah. so that's great and you that was good that was a good program.
0: Absolutely so thank you. I owe I owe everything and all my presence on social media including this YouTube video and my podcast to the foundation that you created. So
1: I don't know. You always had it in your eye. This is it. Yeah. I am yeah.
0: bringing it out, Susan. So I am gonna I'm gonna get you to own some of this along the way because I saw you interviewed recently and uh this amazing CV of yours was read out. And I think at the end of it you said, I'm rather embarrassed. So I'd like you not to be embarrassed, I'd like you to revel in it. So I'm going to read it. Susan was awarded an MBE for services to entrepreneurship and innovation in the Queen's Honours in 2018. Also, you were made a Fellow of the Institute of Direct Marketing and named as one of the top 100 CEOs and leaders shaping the digital industry um you're freeman of the city of london i have sheep by the way just in case you want to borrow them um and the chairman of nottingham's creative quarter and the deputy chairman of nottingham castle you were born in the usa uh, and you've been in the uk since 85 here's the bit that i really do know you from particularly you are the founder of hallam which is one of the uk's top digital marketing agencies Um, And I know you have so many awards to back this up, particularly the drum, the drum Grand Prix. I believe your agency's won that three times. And that's absolutely based on results, isn't it? So it's not just some people in a room deciding that they quite like the look of your agency. But it means you have an amazing creative agency that gets results for their clients. Um, but in 2020, last year, you had an interesting pandemic year because you sold the business or had an MBO. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have a minority interest. Um, but now, technically, you're retired, although it does say that you now are doing CEO roles. You're helping leaders make businesses thrive online. You're a consultant and a coach and obviously have those other trusteeships. So it sounds like a kind of interesting definition of retirement but I'm really keen to come soon to how that's changed your mindset how that's changed your identity but let's just rewind to the beginning of Hallam really when you set out to create an agency and clearly it ended with an MBO but I know and you know because I sold a company it's a long slow burn and What were your real intentions right at the outset, Susan? What was in your mind? Uh,
1: That's a really good question. I come from a family of teachers. My mom's a teacher. My dad was a teacher. Uncle Bill, Aunt Betty, Aunt Ethel, Uncle Jack, all teachers. So I think when I set the company up, I wouldn't really consider myself to be an entrepreneur and I wouldn't say it was imposter syndrome, but I didn't set it up with the view to the fact I was creating something that would ultimately have an exit plan or an exit strategy. I think like many people, I set up the company because I loved what I did. Um, I was really good at it. Um, It paid pretty well. And really, I think the main thing was was I I got tired of other people telling me what to do. So I worked for big blue chip companies. And I think the idea of being nimble and free to do what I wanted to do, for me, was the big spur for setting the company up. But MBO, probably, I didn't even know what that acronym meant when I set the company up.
0: Oh, absolutely. So it wasn't like some kind of flag on the top
1: of the mountain. No, no. for me, it was pretty much just the fact that I just loved what I I love. I genuinely do love digital marketing. I still love it today. And, uh, I think you have to be happy in your work. So, I think mainly it had a lot to do with happiness quotient. Um, I had two small children. I could spend more time with them. One of the decisions I made when I first set the company up is I did not work the entire month of August. I took time off to be home with my family. So, for me, it also just gave me the freedom to kind of pick and choose what I wanted to do.
0: You said, you said just then, and I've heard you in other interviews, say that you think you're almost unemployable, um, which is great for an entrepreneur, really. I, I think that's very much the entrepreneur mindset. But why do you think that? What, what makes you
1: have that view of yourself, Susan? I think part of it is, is that uh, probably a few different things. One of the main things, I bet you like a lot of people listening to this podcast, it's kind of like I'm driven. I know what I love to do and I just want to get on with it. So to be working somewhere that other people are holding me back, I think, is something that that I don't enjoy. But as a result, sometimes I think, Roz, that having this kind of drive and this kind of um, ambition as an entrepreneur doesn't always translate to great leadership and management styles to when you then start to grow a company with, you know, seven employees, 17 employees, 27, 47, 57 employees. So, um, I think that's where I was always really grateful then that I um, that I surrounded myself then with really clever people who had very, very good management and people leadership skills. So, I think in terms of me being unemployable, I just, I just want to do what I want to do and get on with it.
0: I love that. You've answered actually... My next question. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's brilliant. I think we're, 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 we're on a mind here because I hear you. You're, what you're saying is you're not always that square peg. And I think an entrepreneur is somebody who clearly can do the blue sky thinking and see beyond. But I know from my own business and that great book called The E-Myth that um Being an entrepreneur and being a manager are often two very, very different things. And I think my next question was going to be, how did you know how to fill the gaps and what the gaps were? But it sounds like to me that you identified that really early on, like this is not my super duper skill set. This does not bring me joy. I need to bring people in to do that. Is that what I'm hearing?
1: Yeah. Partly, I don't think it was quite as smooth as that. I'd I'd love to be able to take credit and say it worked that smoothly. I think um, most businesses, you know, there are going to be bumps in the road. The question is, how do you handle the bumps? So, probably, it it wasn't easy to admit that actually this wasn't my strength because, again, as an entrepreneur, you reckon I'm good at finance, I'm good at technology, I'm good at people. So, to admit that something's not your strength, I think, was, for me, a big learning curve to say this is not my strength and, and to say, you know, I don't really enjoy it. Uh, I was happy to say that I was happy to say this isn't my my great strength uh, and I'm not enjoying it um, and actually it turned out to be pretty easy then to be hiring people with complementary skills and I don't it's a it's a good question to look back and think did I do that on purpose or did I just do it? Um, just, just, just serendipity. It's funny how things work out, isn't it?
0: It is. It's, it's interesting. I, I, I went to a reunion for Lynn Frank's PR on Zoom on Sunday after 30-odd years. <laughs> very interesting. And I think what Lynn was saying was, oh, you know, we were such a creative agency. We brought this out in people. But I was in my own mind thinking, was it just that creative people were in- attracted to go to that agency in the first place or did that agency somehow work like alchemy and and kind of take some base metal and turn us all into gold i i think it's probably a bit of
1: both um but i think it's really interesting so keep It it, it it is but i think also just to follow on that i think what's interesting it is kind of this kind of like learn something new every day kind of thing don't you think and, and take a risk every day and take take well and and I, and I think part of the big success you know over the years as i look back on on like setting an agency up and, and and i worked by myself for 10 years you reckon before i i hired a first employee which is really not uncommon but i think sometimes it is done just saying giving your yourself permission to say yes i'm going to do it Mm. And I think a lot of times I just took a flyer and just said yes, and I'll figure out how to do it later.
0: Oh yeah, I've I've been around you many times, including that massive conference you had, and like I always know that you're going to be like, "How do we find a way? Let let's find a way." And I love that about you. I think it's really personally, I find that very inspiring. I don't, you know, you you've mentioned that, and I know from personal experience, I didn't have as many employees as you. I think I had twenty three in the end, but. Mm-hmm. They were the people that often gave me those sleepless nights. Um, You talk about bumps in the road. What did those bumps in the road look like?
1: Well, uh, uh, and as you say, I think as the company grows, it's it's about oh, the bumps can be in terms of responsibility and authority. I think it can, in terms of, uh, I think that some of the bumps can have to do with people managing up in terms of, you know, you, yeah. you've got this entrepreneur who founded the business, but fundamentally, you know, we're just like everybody else. We still need the, the exact same types of things. So I, I think for us, I think that the big um, learning curve for me as well was, as I did take a lot of advice over the years. So again, I had a lot of mentoring, a lot of coaching I think that I think in terms of addressing bumps in the road a lot of times I think it was the ability to speak to somebody else about it Um, I participated in something called Goldman Sachs 10,000 small businesses do you know that one Roz? No
0: Um, I've heard you mention that before I'd love to know more about it.
1: Yeah, it's a great ski. So, it's called Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses. It's it's delivered in conjunction with it was previously with the University of Oxford. And essentially, it puts you in a growth group and gives you mentoring and coaching. But I think um, for me, it was the ability to talk to other small business owners. I think being a small business owner can be quite lonely as well, don't yeah. you think?
0: Oh well, 100%, I think it can be very lonely. And I think... You know it's lonely, but it's finding finding the help or finding your tribe, if you like. Um, and often that tribe does come in mentoring groups or coaching groups because you are amongst peers, but peers who also want to elevate. I'm, I'm actually in that exact position at the moment. Yeah. Um, was that your experience with the Goldman Sachs?
1: With Goldman Sachs, I also participated in something called Vistage, which again is the world-leading organization of chief executives. So there there are a number of different circles out there, but I agree with you. For me, it was partly then finding people who um, were willing to share experiences and, and, you know, there ain't nothing new under the sun, but it was all new to me at the time, being in a high-growth company.
0: So I just want to just dial back a bit before we dial forward um, Mm -hmm. what the new iteration, retirement, et cetera, looks like. But I want to talk a little bit about the MBO as well. You said you come from a family of mostly teachers. So how did a family or an upbringing of mostly teachers create an entrepreneur? What do you think it was in your formative years that created that mindset?
1: I think they're two different things. Um, the first thing is, um, and it, this is, it, you know, I have to recognize I'm in a very fortunate position that I had really supportive parents. I was one of four daughters, my parents pretty much said you can do anything. And anything I want to do, my mom and dad were always there backing me up. And I think that had a lot to do with it just in terms of that self confidence, maybe you get as a little kid. Mm. and I think a lot I have my parents to thank for that now not everybody's in that fortunate position but I think I'm in the fortunate position to look back and say you know thank you to my parents for for instilling that kind of confidence um and I I, I the second thing I think is is it, it is um in my case uh, uh timing I happened to be getting involved in this internet bandwagon just as it was taking off big time I wasn't early adopter I was a really early player in the field in terms of ethical search engine optimization when the market was crowded with cowboys so I think um, in terms of my entrepreneurial I did have something unique right in hindsight I realize now I had something unique at the time yeah and I think that had a lot to do with growing the company and it's that
0: definition of luck isn't it because again I've heard you mention luck somebody put this to me the other day uh because I'm living in this beautiful house and I posted a picture of my garden room and said how I only worked three and a half days and I'm like oh, are you lucky and I just put I've
1: worked really hard at that luck um, um, that, that, yeah, that's, that's the exactly saying so. isn't it that the harder I work the luckier I get
0: <laughs> exactly but the definition mm-hmm. I've heard of luck is when Opportunity meets preparation. So, obviously, what was the preparation? Because that was the opportunity. You were in the right place at the right time. You seized this emerging new world, this new business, this new opportunity of online internet. What was the preparation? You think that brought you to that point?
1: Um, I think it would be a combination. Of, and again, as you know, I, I am American, so I, you know there is this great myth in America that. Uh, you know, um, you can be what you want to be. But for me, education is often the way out. So I, ha- I have a master's degree in information science. So, again, I did have all of this knowledge and skill. I actually knew something that we- turned out to be very powerful uh, and very useful. So I think the preparation was partly in that. Um, I did also, before I was, uh, I was 38 before I set up my own company. So I think sometimes people are older than you think. Mm. I think I had worked at British Telecom. I had worked at Capital One. I had been a senior lecturer at the university for eight years. So I had a lot of experience under my belt. And I think for for entrepreneurs, um, you actually have to have something that makes you Different, either experience and knowledge, Um, and I think for me that had a lot to do with it in terms of that preparation.
0: Yeah, and you don't necessarily know you're doing it at the time or what it's adding up to, but that's where I mean that you are that perfect crossover. There's the preparation. There's the opportunity. I'd seized it. Oh, well, aren't you lucky? <laughs> you know, so you're right. And then you keep working harder and harder at that luck.
1: It was also an interesting exercise, though, that when I decided to set the company up, one of the things that uh, we had to do was sit down and figure out, my husband and me, how much money do we need? Mm. So we did go through a really interesting exercise. There's a book about this right now called Enough. And the question is, yeah, I'd recommend it. I would strongly recommend the book is called Enough. And the idea is how much money do you need? And I, I think as an entrepreneur, I was in the fortunate position to be, you know, we did have our finances in place personally. So I knew I needed the money to pay my mortgage and feed yeah. the kids. But I think partly there is that um, confidence to know that even if I only worked this many days a month, there would still be enough for us yeah. to, to get by on. I like that. I realized I
0: did that exercise with Tony Robbins way back when um, we did. I went to a massive online. I did Mastery University and there was a bit called Financial Mastery and it was in Phoenix, Arizona. I always remember. And mm. yeah, we did that exercise. It wasn't called that then. But he, he, yes, exactly. He was like, how much do you need to be able to and people were like chucking out crazy amounts of money. <laughs> And I think we went, oh, a million dollars, you know, because it just seemed like a kind of a good point. And when we actually did the sums, it was a hundred grand. I mean, this was back in the 90s. And, and suddenly yeah. to me, that was like, wow, that is really achievable. A million, that just seemed a bit crazy. But that hundred thousand seemed like a really achievable amount. So I realized we, we must have done that, pretty much that exercise
1: And I think that gave me the confidence in the early days that I knew how much money did I need to earn a month. Um, And I think also, I think I mentioned to you, I just mentioned how I wouldn't work in August. I'd take the month off, but that's then I would work like bilio in September and October to stash the cash so that I I could then take that time off. But it is that that was that was for me, that was a really important starting point. You've mentioned
0: that you've taken lots of advice from mentors and good people and coaches along the way. What is your criteria for identifying who those good people to work with or to work with you are?
1: Um It's interesting because I I think of one of one of the mentors I had was one of the very first when I was 23 years old. I had just moved to the United Kingdom and it was my very first job. And I realized in hindsight, it wasn't a formal mentoring or coaching relationship. So um, I think it's a question of what kind of people can help you with your thinking and are interested in developing you. So I think mentoring and coaching doesn't have to just come from people who are calling themselves mentors and coaches. It's all around you, so it's about nurturing personal relationships with you with people who either make you feel better or give you constructive criticism in a really positive way. And, and I think you know this. It, it's never about taking people down a peg; it's helping them to be better at, at no, what they sometimes,
0: do. Sometimes you have to hold a mirror
1: up, you know, but yes. you're doing
0: it yeah. from a place of kind of love, and you know, hey, but look, let's identify this groundhog day behavior that's going on. And maybe then we, we, you know, you need to understand that you need to own it and then we can move on from it. So a lot of coaching and mentoring, certainly in my case, with kind of underpinned with the therapy, I am holding a mirror up. And sometimes people don't like what they're seeing, but...
1: We've all had moments, that I have had people, people you know, point things out, and that and that that's how you learn. But it's all coming from this position where you can trust. So, so your question is, how did I choose a person? So sometimes I chose it through a formal network, and through a formal network, for me the number one way is, I'm sure for you, you must get lots of recommendations. So I did listen to people who said, look, this is a great person to work with. You know, it just seems like you guys. It's so I, I've I've had recommendations. Sometimes it was just dumb luck that you met somebody and it, it really just clicked and it, and it and it was helpful but again a lot of success i think isn't isn't planned in, in that way it just it, again it arises on that journey that you're on as the business grows
0: there's a great coach called dan savage and dan savage talks about the price of admission he talks about it in the context of a relationship i'm in a brilliant relationship the price of admission is i have to ignore that they snore at night um you know that's the price i pay going up towards the point where your company was being sought after by other people and then you went for the mbo what price of admission were you paying
1: That's interesting. So, that um, as the business grew, we realized, and and one of the things that I learned was creating the exit strategy. So, at that point, I I think probably for a good two years, maybe three years, we were talking about what might exit look like. So, I think we were having grown up conversations about the exit strategy early on, but we were then approached. By two companies who were interested in buying us, and this was kind of out of the blue, so it was a bit of a surprise. Um, to the point that we did go through the due diligence, and we actually had an offer on the table. Now back to your, you know, price of admission. Yeah. You know, there is going to be an earnout that you are going to have. hmm It would be. I did
0: one. Well, I did part of one, Susan.
1: <laughs> we we and, didn't move on from that, but it's. And I don't know anybody who's had. A happy earnout.
0: No, it was probably the most miserable experience of my life, and the compromise agreement that cut it short was probably the most painful
1: experience. Hurtful, exactly. So I think I knew early on that, that really, that, a, that an, an earnout was just not something that I was interested at all. And so the price of admission would be maybe there would be lower value, but in any case, just let me out. That was it really right. but but then the other thing then to think about is in, in consultation with the other directors they too would have to be in the earnout and they were they're a lot younger than i am so what we needed to look at is what was going to make all of us happy in terms of of, of that exit and i think probably getting the offer from a, 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 a another company accelerated the MBO convers the management buyout conversations with my colleagues to say, you know, well, either we're gonna to have to sell out and you're gonna to have to that's all the way it is, or can we find a way forward in terms of the MBO? So um th- 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 it is a question of what the circumstances are at the ta- at the moment. The main thing is, is that I, my plan, one bit of advice I give entrepreneurs, my financial plan was never to sell the company. So I've got my money in my pension. I've been saving my money all along. The MBO, icing on the cake.
0: Brilliant. That wasn't the only end game.
1: Totally, totally. So that's where we had been stashing the cash in our pensions, all, all along to, to ensure that we would have a lifestyle once once we had exited the company
0: so you were doing lots of really smart good things about transitioning and moving on to this other place um, I had a on the waterfront moment after I uh, sold my business uh, it was a cupcake moment you'll relate to this so on the waterfront you know Marlon Brando's like I used to be a contender Um, I'm not anymore. That was my identity. My identity was when I was in that ring. Who am I now? And I was picking my kids up from school when I was living in the Bahamas. And somebody asked me what my favorite cupcake recipe was, an American. And I just heard myself going, I used to be the MD of a PR company. (laughs) This, This kind of was my on the waterfront moment. How have you, how did you prepare for that transition? And how that mental identity transition of of going from, you know, the, uh, the CEO of this incredibly successful, dynamic, fast moving business to this retirement that you have and how has that panned out in reality for you?
1: It's, it's it 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 is worth thinking about, and as you said, we did deliberately. I did deliberately think about it, and and again, there's there's quite a lot written about what's happening, you know, in your life, and the, and the, the the things that I took on board. The first thing is, in my mind's eye, you know, you're you've you've got three movements in your life, so you've got that that movement up until like I was 23, 24, which is kind of like your education and learning movement. And then I had 25 to to now until I say 60. And that was my kind of business movement. And now all of a sudden, I'm 60. I still got, I hope, a good 30 years to go. And this is my next chapter in my life in terms of what else do I want to be doing. Um, So for me, you know, is it um, paying it for me, my, my plan for me is still paying it forward. I've been really lucky all these years, and now this is my chance to do voluntary work and advisory work and things. So, in terms of preparation, um, over the last few years, I've been doing a lot more things outside of the agency that I founded. Yeah. So, as I say, I serve as trustee of Nottingham Castle, and I think. Um, what i'm trying to do deliberately is not talk about who i used to be yes previously still me but the question is what i I want to talk to you about is what am i doing now as opposed to what did i achieve then and i still don't want to talk to you about cupcake recipes because i don't care about cupcake recipes
0: me neither (laughs) i'm really not Not at (laughs) all. I had no FOMO about it. You know? like,
1: no, 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 and, and and as you say, retirement doesn't mean that I'm going to become this little old lady kind of thing. But on the other hand, you know, I've got travel I want to do and adventures I want to do. You know, further education, things I still want to learn. There's, and I guess the main thing is, um, so the, so the one lesson I had was consider this to be the next chapter in your life.
0: Yes, exactly. rather than
1: always looking back. Second bit of advice that I got was called "rip off the plaster." And what that means is, now that I sold the company, that's done. Yes. Don't don't look back. Don't look at it. Don't meddle. Don't interfere. Don't. don't, You've got to then move on and become who you're going to become now. Um, And I think that was really good advice that I got. Just to see. Yeah. Look forward.
0: And how do you celebrate this success? Then what what are your celebratory moments? What do you do?
1: In terms of the MBO. Well, the life you have. Oh, I, you know, I, I think one thing is, 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 um, don't forget to count your blessings. Mm. You know, it, it is grateful. You know, if you think every morning, one time I was on a course and the one thing I learned that was a really good thing to do every day, you have to do three things. First thing to do is is to do a random act of kindness yeah. every day. Somebody comes up to the traffic light, let them out. Help somebody, whatever. Do a random act of kindness. Second thing is get some physical exercise. Get outside, walk around, be grateful in nature is the second thing. And then, and then the third thing is a, a, an expression of gratitude every day. Every day, be grateful that the sun is shining, although it is bloody cold here compared to Florida. It's very cold, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I know, don't we? <laughs> but, but you're saying in terms of celebrating, I think that's been a habit that uh, you, you think about habits and that has been a habit with me for a number of years. Is it, I do think, I don't know what you think, but the whole random act of kindness thing does make you feel good. Oh, if
0: you go to my blog, I post about it regularly again back to the 90s when I was on the Tony Robbins Mastery University. That was back in the day when that movement was founded and we were all given cards and we'd we'd hand them out and, and we'd do things like I remember being on the freeway in America and we paid for the next car yes yeah uh, you know, like oh take take for the next car as well um you know because they're going to turn up to the booth and they just go "Oh, that person paid so I learned that movement yeah in the 90s and I think it's amazing I mean I I heard about George Michael after he died and oh what he did for people but he never bragged about it he wasn't public about it they were very they weren't so much random but they were hidden maybe and you know I don't mind you can be a a visual philanthropist. I mean, I come from being the head of a marketing for a charity. So I love philanthropists and if they want recognition, I have no problem with that. So whatsoever, but sometimes that just paying it forward in that random or quiet way is so beautiful, isn't it?
1: It is. And and again, I think as I think of my, the third chapter of my life, I think of retired people who are finishing it. Don't you hate the word retired? Yeah. Anyway. I, I mean, I'm reading your CV. I don't, you know, and, we're
0: not a dissimilar age, so trust me. I'm I'm doing a three-year plan for myself, but it won't look like any retirement that happened, you know. And also, exactly. Have you yeah. tried Googling? I mean, you're 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 from an internet background. If you Google "happy retired couple," um, there's two things you should Google. One is woman eating salad. There's just loads of pictures of women going. Like this, you know, like kind of... I'll write it down, yeah. make <laughs> with a lettuce, you know. So just put woman-eating salad and then go to the images bit. The okay. bit is, you know, happy retired couple or even 50-plus retirement. And it's all people on P&O cruises or people running down sand jeans, holding hands with really bad-fitting jeans. And it's like, no,
1: no, that, that isn't what I'm doing or planning. No. No. So I agree with you entirely. And this whole, you know, are you going to go on cruises? It's like, well, I didn't go on a cruise when I was younger. Why do I want to go on a cruise now? (laughs) Now, I want to go trekking in in the Sahara. So that was one of our best holidays, was trekking in the dunes of the Sahara Desert. That was super cool. Now, I'm a little bit older, so maybe I'm not going to be able to do it as well. But that's still on my list big time. And, you know, you talk about retired couples. You you think of one retired power couple, Barack Obama, Barack and Michelle Obama.
0: Beautiful
1: that's it you know they they have now finished that that phase in their lives they're now doing something else but you still wouldn't call them retired would you
0: no so what but they what
1: are. is next for you then so next as you say um we're, do, we're very fortunate that we we have managed to buy a second home in florida so we're going to be splitting our time between the uk and uh, the united states and then For me, again, a lot of a lot of my time I'm spent with doing two different things is kind of this uh, corporate social responsibility, working with the castle and I'm trustees of scholarships and things. Mm. nottingham castle is going to be super 37 million pounds could be an amazing experience the castle opens on the 21st of june so i hope to be seeing you all how there
0: can find that because i mean i'm from nottingham i love the castle but this is going to go all over the world susan so how can people find out about and just so you all know nottingham castle robin hood 37 million pound investment you've all got to go
1: so how can they yeah. find out so if you just google nottingham castle or nottingham castle trust on the website is the information in terms of the new robin hood and the rebellion gallery and the the reconstituted there there's playgrounds it's really a, a friendly place for the citizens of nottingham and we're expecting lots of international tourists once the pandemic settles down yes, of course. we'll take that um, mm-hmm. And what else is on your plan? And then the second thing is, I and I'm really enjoying uh, working uh, as a as a sounding board and coach for digital marketing for either marketing professionals or small business owners. And I'm in the really fortunate position I can pick and choose who I want to work with. Um, I'm working with a very small number of clients and really really loving it. So I'm still doing what I love. I just don't have to do it all day every day. I don't know how that sounds to other people on this podcast, but I love what I do. I just don't want to have to do it all day. Day. It
0: sounds perfectly brilliant to me if somebody wanted to work with you how would they reach out to you susan
1: so uh, my name is susan hallam and you if you you can connect with i invite everybody to connect with me on linkedin i do love linkedin otherwise it's www.susanhallam.com
0: and two final questions one is what's the question that you wouldn't want me to ask you please ask yourself and then let us know what would that be
1: question probably the one I'm probably most uncomfortable with people I hate you know in terms of your failures what was the greatest failure you ever experienced don't you hate that so um that, that I was always afraid you're going to say to me you know what was the you know what was the worst thing it's like well why would I tell you the worst thing? <laughs> why would I say that yeah really? no, I'm not gonna go there yeah. Oh well, that's great. No, I um. I, like- I guess the failure thing for entrepreneurs, the failure thing, Roz. I think, don't you I think that's the. Mm-hmm. And
0: look. You and I are on the same page that, you you know, we learn from our failures. You know, I used to have yep. a sign next to my desk back in the PR days. I've learned so much from my mistakes, but I, I think I'll make another. But actually, it wasn't a strategy. It was like moving on. But you, you don't dwell on them. That's the whole point. You just see it as an outcome you didn't want. Exactly. Or
1: I think probably what I do mentally is I don't consider it a failure anymore. Exactly. I think failures, to me, are things I haven't managed to get over in some way. Yeah. Maybe, that's perhaps, yeah. yeah. I,
0: I hear you. I hear you. And if you had um, your monkey brain, so that part of you that – talks to you and drives you on if you had to give it a name or or give it an identity what would you give that uh
1: for me it's always kind of nag 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 isn't there so it's that quiet voice it's so for me it's the nag Mm. that nag nag thing you know in terms of are you working hard enough and are you prepared enough and are you earning enough so it's that kind of nag nag thing which I guess probably is coming there's so many voices that you experience all your life it's probably that, that aggregation of all these different kind of things that, that you built up over the course of your life. But for me, it's the nag.
0: It's called the internal corrections, obviously. You're absolutely right. It's like we take it externally and then we start to bring it internally. But it sounds like you've, you've put yours in a lovely bed of straw and it's quite bedded down now because you sound like you've created that balance. Would that be true?
1: I think the main thing is, is that I think what I've learned to do is recognize it for what it is. So you're, I'm never going to get rid of the nag. But I guess the question is 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 how can you get quiet it enough down to know that, that everything's good? You know, everything and I think it's always that to opti- I think that natural optimism is probably the characteristic of an entrepreneur as well, that you do learn to to just to, to focus on the good, focus on the good news rather than on the nag who's at, at the back of your mind in the dark hours at night. Susan, it I could talk to you all day. <laughs> I really could. <laughs> oh, oh, it's lovely, Roz. I've enjoyed it. Thanks again for
0: inviting me. And I hope I haven't asked. A- same old same old questions that uh, nah
1: super cool conversation I enjoyed it but it's a good to re- it's good to reflect everybody should have the chance to be on your podcast it's a great chance to reflect back on your career
0: oh thank you so much I appreciate that so uh, a mutual loving will end but thank you again my guest today has been Susan Hallam um, I'll post details of how you can get in touch with Susan if you want that incredibly high level mentor or coach in, in the digital area and also So um, I'm really excited about everything you're involved in, paying it forward. I look forward to seeing the new Nottingham Castle when we can and to everything else that you go on to, Susan. So it's been an absolute delight. And I look forward, because I know this is going to be just one of a series. I look forward to our next conversation sometime in the future. So thank you, Susan Hallam.
1: Me too. Thanks again then, Ros. Thanks again.
0: I've been Roslyn Palmer, and you've been listening to Monkey Business. You've been listening to Monkey Business Podcast. And my guest today has been Susan Hallam, an outstanding entrepreneur and businesswoman who, from setting up her company, age 38, has navigated bumps in the road, realized what was enough, both in terms of finances and achievements, to be able to leave to an MBO, a management buyout of the time when her company was absolutely arguably at the top of its game, lauded repeatedly with awards, good fortune, incredible clients. Susan has recalled her early upbringing that instilled in her, her ability, her mindset, her drive to get through, to create this incredible business that she's now moved on from and she tells us about how busy it is in retirement uh, as she is actively mentoring developing supporting being a non-executive director and trustee of incredible organizations including the historical nottingham castle susan hallam has been my guest I'm Rosalind Palmer, and I look forward to welcoming you again to the next episode of Monkey Business, when my guest will be Ram Gidimal.